calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Hey there, it's Rachel Ballinger, and I am thrilled to invite you to Rachel Uncensored, my podcast where I get real with my friends and celebrity guests, where we talk about all sorts of topics. From personal stories to hot button issues, we cover it all. New episodes drop every Wednesday, so make sure you tune in on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Trust me, you won't want to miss out on the fun and candid conversations we have here on Rachel Uncensored. Good day, good people. This is Brad King, and you are listening to the Downtown Writer's Jam podcast, which is part of the Solid Listen Podcast Network. Max the Dog and I are coming to you from deep inside the jam bunker today. It is a gorgeous day here in Pittsburgh. We're a little sad. My girlfriend just left to head back home to Alabama after a week. It's lovely to have her here. So we're coming to you a little bit late today, if you're listening to us on the release day, because I decided to uh, take a little time for myself after we dropped her off at the airport. But the sun is up. Max is having a good day. She's safe at home. So we're having a good time. We're glad you stopped by. I am super excited today. Uh, in the bunker, Tommy Swerdlow, whose book Straight Dope is out right now. Um, sometimes you meet people when you do shows like this that you just kind of connect with, that you just sort of get. And, you know, I'm almost 50, and so that happens less and less. As I talk to people, because, you know, a lot of writers that I talk to, a lot of people I come across, they're younger. But Tommy and I uh, had lots of similar life experiences. And so it was really fun and fascinating to talk to him, to hear about his life and, and, and how things progressed. Because as you're going to hear, in some ways, it was really different than mine. Like, he has been sort of around creative stuff and smart things his whole life. And so his journey is really interesting. And if you don't know Tommy, you, you kind of know Tommy. Uh, he's an American actor and screenwriter. He's been in films like Howard the Duck, Spaceballs. Uh, he co-wrote the screenplay uh, Cool Runnings, the great movie. Little Giants, which is a hilarious movie. Snow Dogs and The Grinch. And he made his uh, directorial debut in 2017 with a feature called A Thousand Junkies which if you go read about that and then listen to the show, you will understand that film. So I'm excited. Uh, I'm excited for you to hear it. Uh, I was really excited to do the interview. And as I sat down to edit it, this is the first interview where I had no edits. I, literally, what you hear was the entirety of our conversation. Um, it's short. It's shorter than normal. We're about, I think we're about 55 minutes. Uh... But I think you're going to be entertained. Tommy's a cool dude, and his story is really interesting. Um, and some kind, sometimes in a heartbreaking way, and sometimes in just one of those like, holy shit ways. So before we get to all of that, got a little bit of business. So you know the jam's out every Wednesday, and our video podcast is out on Mondays and Fridays. A couple things you could do to help us out. Tell your friends about us. That is the best way to spread the word about the jam. The second thing you can do is leave us a review, particularly on Apple Podcasts, where you can leave us a star and a written review if you're using your mobile phone. If you aren't on Apple, you're not using an Apple Podcast, like head over to our Facebook page and leave us a review there. You can also go to thewritersjam.com and leave us a testimonial through the contact page. All of that helps us spread the word about what we're doing here. 
The video podcast series, like I said, is on the website, but you can also catch the audio wherever you listen to podcasts. If you're looking for a book to read, we have book reviews. And if you're looking to buy that book, you can click on the bookshop link on our site, support local and independent bookstores around the country, and get that book sent to you. We also got that monthly newsletter. You'll get book recommendations, reviews, highlights, all kinds of stuff showing up in your email box once a month. And you can support everybody on the Solid Listen Network by clicking on that Patreon button. And when you do that, for just a couple bucks a month, you get commercial-free episodes, special happy hours, and some bonus content. Now, I did my little spiel there a little earlier than I normally do, so I'm not going to do another one other than just to say, uh, I think it's really important in life to take those moments of reflection. I'm thinking about this one because my girlfriend went back home yesterday, and so you know, I literally normally would have pushed through and gotten this show out. You know, I'd have come home, done it at night, but I just decided I was going to take some time and just sort of breathe life in a little bit, um, get up this morning and do it. Uh, and that was a good decision. Like, I'm sorry I'm late, but it's a good decision for me. And like listening to my interview with Tommy and just sort of reflecting on all of those sort of similarities that we had in life and that the time and place in which we were doing the things that we were doing. Uh, it's just good to do that. It's good to take that stock every once in a while. So I hope that you uh, carve out a little time for yourself to do that because I find it reinvigorates me and sort of breathes life back into me. All right. Appreciate you stopping by the bunker to spend some time with Max and I. I know that you're busy. I know you're out doing stuff. I hope that your day is going well and that you're taking care of yourself and each other. And I hope for the next hour or so, you will sit back and enjoy my conversation with the wonderful Tommy Sperber. Uh, what are you doing down in Mexico City? I just came. I'm on vacation. And uh, I'm here um, meeting a friend of mine. How long are you there for? I'm here for another about six days, I'd say. Been here about four days. Very, have you ever been here? I have not. I've worked for a couple of people that were from there and they've told me that it's a beautiful place. It's, yeah, I mean, it's got a lot, I'm in a really cool like neighborhood. It's, it's like, you know, it's very sophisticated. Like things yeah. we're interested in, they're much more interested in here than where we're from. Yeah. You know, like bookstore, like, People read like the expressions of their faces when they read. You're like, oh, these are like young Borges, you know, yeah. <laughs> like they're like yeah. serious about intellectual. It's very sophisticated. And then there's this whole other sort of, you know, intense, you know, that's not where I'm at now, third world vibe. But like I went to the palace yesterday, which is just like wildness, you know what I mean? Yeah. So there's a lot going on here, though, for sure. And it's huge, right? Like it's, I mean, it's like one of the biggest cities on yeah. in North I, I'm not even getting a sense of that yet. I can't even get to the point where I understand that. Yeah. yeah. I think that it is though. I think it is a massive. Giant. Massive. It's yeah. massive. It's yeah. massive. And there's like, you know, eight, 16 million. It's like China. I mean, it's yeah. like, like, oh yeah, it's like crazy. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, I think it's one of the things that Americans don't like. I don't think they realize that that exists down there that like it's a bigger than anything we can really imagine exactly it makes the yeah, it, it makes new york seem goofy man because <laughs> it's like new york like you'll feel the density people are on the street but it's spread out in like la it's as big as la but it's not a car there's or it's a combination of the yeah. intense car culture of la and then the walking of new york yes. Craziness. Man. Yes. The, Daniel told me that was the, the guy I worked with when I lived in Texas. He was like, it's just hard to explain. He's like, you just have to go. And like, he's like, you'll never get a sense of it because it's just too big to really understand. Yeah. Are you from Texas? Uh, no, I lived in Austin for 10 years. So uh, I did. Did you like it? Uh, yeah, I liked Austin. I was there in the 90s. So like um, I was there sort of at the at the end of the, the old era. Of it. Yeah. And then I came back from California in 2002. And that was like the beginning of like what it is today. Right. I wrote a, I wrote I, I went there for a few days. I wrote a TV pilot that never got made, but about a all about the old Austin versus the new Austin, where yeah. a kid who's like a hip songwriter, whose father's a, an Austin legend, like a like a Willie. But yeah. not as big, like like a guitar player from a band. The feud between them, they hate each other. And then the kid finds out he's only he's great when his father plays guitar for him. And, <laughs> and so it was all about old Austin and new Austin kind of having to converge, you know? Yeah. 
Well, you'll like this. I bartended and worked at Antone's for like two and a half years. Like I was right in the heart of um, all of that stuff. I was there the night Clifford got arrested, in fact. Um, Clifford who? Clifford Antone. Um, You know, that's the big blues bar down there. Right, right, right. Like that was where like Jim, uh, Stevie Ray Vaughan got his start, ZZ Top and like Willie, all those guys. I mean, Stevie was dead, but like Double Trouble, Jimmy Vaughan would play there. And uh, yeah, Clifford got busted with like 300 pounds of pot because you know (laughs) musicians would come through. And um, so I was there the night they shut that down, and we were like, "Oh shit, that's okay." (laughs) Uh, So you're where are you originally from? New York City. Oh, so what part? I mean, actually, I'm from Long Island, and then I moved. We moved to New York when I was I'm the youngest, and then all the my brothers and sisters left, and my parents went back to the city as opposed to leaving the city. Yeah, and uh, Upper West Side, like classic. Trotskyite Upper West Side of <laughs> Manhattan. My brother used to call it the Soviet Socialist Republic of the Upper West Side of Manhattan. <laughs> so how many brothers and sisters did you have? I have two sisters still alive. And then my brother, who was uh, named Ezra, who probably, if if people were paying attention in your audience, his name is on the end of a lot of movies. He was a producer and a lot of, a lot of well-known, like many, many. And he got very sick a couple of years ago and passed away. Oh, I'm sorry to hear that. Uh, well, so, and what did your parents do? My dad was a frustrated, he was a writer, but he didn't write. He sold nylon and he produced interesting theater. He was big in the arts community and interesting correspondences with artists, with Ionesco, because he produced plays. He produced a well-known play that was a big hit musical in New York in the late 60s, 70s called Jacques Brel is Alive and Well and Living in Paris that ran for like seven years. That was a big hit. And he didn't invest in hair when he had the chance. (laughs) And my mother was very interesting character too, was a red diaper baby raised by real communists and and in socialists in in this first socialist co-ops in the Bronx, then became a kind of well-known, not well-known, but a a major peace activist when they were, when they were, um, about the banning of nuclear testing, when that was a big issue in the early 60s. And she started a thing called Women's Strike for Peace with a couple of other women. And then it became a very big, big anti-Vietnam War organization. And then she went back to school and feminism was such a young branch of study that because she had had all this experience, they sort of made her a teacher right away, even though she was a student. So she sort of began teaching and getting her master's in feminism. And then she became the head of women's history at Sarah Lawrence. So she was like a major historian major academic. My mom was, you know, a very a great creative writer, but a, but a great editor and, and um, advisor to people. Um, so interesting, you know, and, and they were very sort of of that intellectual, artistic, left-wing New York when that was, you know, when people kind of, it wasn't as ironic, I think, in 1968. Yeah. <laughs> I, interview, I interviewed Scott Stevens, who had written, you know, he's written a bunch of stuff, Endless Love and all this stuff, and he was right. like, the number three guy in the Illinois Socialist Party. Right. When Endless you Love, told me that. Yeah, when, right. when he sold it. And it was like one of these really weird, he's like, well, now I have this political thing, but also I've just like hit it big. And like, right. you know, his personal politics are very much in that in that sort of 60s socialist, right. socialism right. thing. Right. And I was saying, telling you, I don't, I don't have any. My, my personal politics are like, politics is what happened instead of my childhood. I resent them. <laughs> and so what did your brothers and sisters do like what were you guys like as kids because that sounds like a fascinating childhood you know you know none of us none of us like you know i know i i think i think you know i think jonathan lethem has a very similar upbringing and he writes about it a lot i think i, I mean i haven't read that many books of his but but it's a big thing and a big influencing thing. And we went to rallies and stuff, but my none of my brother, my mother was such an intense figure that I think no one could in good conscience sort of follow into her because she was such a, she was a difficult person along with being a powerful yeah. force in the world. So, you know, my sister became a shrink and my brother, what well, actually it's not true. My brother was becoming a Hegelian scholar. Uh, you know what I mean? A, a scholar of Hegel. Yeah. And he got a job from a friend of his who was from Hampshire College. They went um, um, as a location scout on the Woody Allen movie Stardust Memories in 1979. 
And he just went and became the location manager on Arthur to Tootsie to King of Comedy. And he never looked back and he became a movie producer, like really making the movies. And he never, you know, picked up a book again. I mean, he booked up books to read. Right. But he, 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 it just was a summer job turned into an entire life. And, and, and so he was actually following in Amy, that's my mother's name's footsteps. My other sister was, was not, she was a creative dancer. And then I was just always sort of creative. My father was, you know, was a, acted, but didn't go through with it. So I became an actor and a writer. I just always, I couldn't figure out anything else to do. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, you know, one of the themes on the show, like people that end up doing this kind of thing, I always say there's like a path to be a lawyer and a path to be a doctor. Like, you know how to do it. And then there's this, if you have this creative thing, it's sort of like you just kind of end up in these places and it kind of develops over time and you don't really know, understand your career until you're in it. Right. And you're like, oh shit, of course, of course, this is where I was supposed to be. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I always, you know, I, I have a lot of um, learning disabilities. And so I couldn't really function in school, like, and do well in school, but I did always sort of like write the poems, like at my high school, I was like the pot dealer. Like I was, you know, I was like the weed dealer, but I was also the valedictorian, meaning I didn't go get any grades, but I did the speech yeah. and I wrote a poem for this progressive, crazy high school. You know what I mean? This, 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 um, this school I went to. So, so that was, you know, and, and it was like, you know, it was funny because my friend, my high school friend who didn't do that was, is this guy who's a very famous playwright named Kenny Lonergan, Kenneth Lonergan, who wrote this, this Manchester by the Sea and won the oh, Oscar. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, you know, it was a funny place, but I always, I was always able to write poems and I always, and I knew, I just knew I couldn't do anything. Like I couldn't, yeah. I didn't know what to, like, that was the most, that was the only thing I could take seriously or it would seem like maybe you can make money if it worked out yeah know? i mean I, whenever i talk to young writers i always tell them if you have a plan b you won't be a writer because it's a terrible hard job and like if you have an out you're gonna at some point be sitting in front of a blank page and go well i'm gonna go do this other thing right, right? right. i think to be a writer not that you have to have nothing else but like it has to be that like i don't know if i have another skill other than words like exactly and then the screenwriting, you know, the, the funny thing about the screenwriting is, you know, it, it's like 1% of novelists can make a living or, or one half percent, probably 2.3% of screenwriters can, yeah. you know what I mean? Yeah. So the screenwriting is at least viable as, as pay. Right. You know what I mean? Where you really got to, I mean, to be a, to make a living as a novelist, is wild, you know yeah. what I mean? Or and, yeah. and no one does it as a poet. I mean, you got to be a teacher. Yeah. I mean, you got to be a teacher. That's the other thing. And I couldn't, I can't um, navigate academia, so I, it wasn't an option. So, yeah. so I was an actor, you know. And then, and then screenwriting is a great thing if you want to combine sort of acting and mm -hmm. some facility with words. Yeah, kind of act. I kind of act it when I do it. I don't really write it, you know. And yeah. I mean, I kind of play the part. So. I'm convinced that the only way to make it as a novelist is, a, is if you sell it to Hollywood. <laughs> you right. got to sell the rights and hope that that becomes a thing. It's interesting that you said that, though, about screenwriting. I was just having this discussion with a guest the other day. I've now interviewed four, five, six screenwriters. Um, the guy who wrote The Jerk and, and you know, the guy who wrote Young Doctors in Love. Um, and as they have transferred into novel writing, they've said the structure of novel or the structure of screenwriting, you have a limited amount of time, things need to happen where they're supposed to happen. It's not dialogue driven, it's, it's visual driven, has helped them write novels in a way that when I hear traditional novelists talk about writing, like that's sort of the struggle is figuring that out. And so I think going from screenwriting to novel writing is actually weirdly easier to do. I don't know if that has been your experience, but People read people read my book in th th three or three hours. You know, it took me like three years to write because, uh, first of all, my book is heavy dialogue, but I wrote it with that screenwriting yeah. ethos in mind. Just and not because I, mean, I kind of meant to, but also because I just I'm so conditioned to keep moving forward. Yes. You yes. know what I mean? Yes. And so even the regressions. I wrote the second book I just finished that. You know, I just finished the first draft. It's a different style. First of all, Chandler, that whole thing I was trying to, that I was leaning on, 
is cinematic. You know what I mean? Yeah. It, 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 it wants to move. You know, the one I just did is a little slower, but no matter what, my, I, between my ADD, between how bored I get and nervous and, and the fact that I read all this stuff out loud to myself yeah. yes, and, I, and I'm not happy if it doesn't play as good monologue. So I end up cutting. So screen, someone once said, a couple of people said to me like, why don't you just write the screenplay? You know, and, and, and I was like, no, this is, a, this is a novel, but I found it helpful, man. And I found having story, like, you know, screenwriters think story, they have to. And you're, I, I mean, I don't know if it's not, di it isn't dialogue driven unless you're Quentin, I guess, you know, I mean, right, he right. sort of right. got into that idea, but it's movement driven and it's definitely not like, what am I feeling driven? Or yes. you know what I mean? It's not inner monologue. Yes, that's what I mean. It's not, yeah. it is, it is, it has to be upfront. Right. And that makes it move, right? Like it, 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 it doesn't allow you to do all of the things of like, well, this is a hard day. Like that has to be represented in some other way. Right? Right. <laughs> I, it's probably, it, it, you know what it's like? It's like being really good at the compulsory part of the skate, of the ice skating program. Yeah. You know what I mean? So it's probably easier for a screenwriter to go, oh, let me stretch out a little yeah. and do a novel as opposed to people who are used to having a lot of space and a lot of words and a lot of slack yes. learning how to get a chord tight. You know yeah. what I mean? Because it's a, it's a, it's an art. It's a, it's, it's a skill, man. I mean, there's no I, doubt. And that's why they're not that many good ones. They're hard screenplays. Yeah. Shockingly. And everyone thinks they can write them because everyone's watched movies. Yeah. It was the same way with books, right? Like I can yeah. write a book. Like, yeah. Yeah, I no one that. says that about heart surgery. <laughs> yeah, I know. Yeah. <laughs> so in high school then, in like middle school and high school, so, you know, you have a dad that's sort of a writer and a mom that does this stuff. He like, wasn't a writer. He had written, he, he, well, he, was, he was a Arts, the arts were a big deal. You it know was what an I mean? Art person. I was not discouraged like many people are, where their father yeah. says to them, "What are you talking about? Are you are you out of your mind?" You know. So I'm assuming that like you like I don't want to assume. I think you said like you weren't great in school. So did you gravitate towards like theater and the arts and things like that, or did you sort of did you because you were in New York sort of gravitate outside of school to that stuff? Um, like who were you back then? I always. I always had a lot of um, juice, like when I got on stage, like I just, I just, I, I had a lot of, I was able to make people feel me, whether I was writing or whatever, but I was a legit juvenile delinquent. You know what I mean? Like, cause I was really, me and my mother, it was very contentious between us. She's a very strong personality. When I got in trouble, I got sent to boarding school. I have a real good novella. I, I wrote about running away from this crazy boarding school I was sent to when I was 12. And um so, so, you know, I knew it, but it wasn't until I was 17 and I said, I'm not going to go to college. And then I, I went and I said, you know, writing, I, I didn't realize I could really do it. And because of learning disabilities, I didn't think to myself, oh, it's not that hard. Like it seemed a little bit more mysterious than acting. And it seemed a little lonelier. And so to sit down, like if I had just written, like I always think now, like if I had just come home at night and just written down what I was doing. I was living, I was 16. It was Upper West Side of Manhattan, 1979. I was living with a 14 year old girl and her parents were letting me live with her like her husband. And I was taking the seven train to Queens with like to get five pounds of pot and a knapsack on the seven train and like selling pot to all these kids. And like, if I had just written down just what had happened, like without being a good writer, yeah. it would have been an amazing book. But I didn't understand at that point how simple it really is, that it really is just sort of like telling a little story, you know, and it seemed a little mysterious. So acting seemed more possible or not as lonely and daunting to me. So I got into Lee Strasberg's class. I worked, my brother got on that movie, Arthur, as the location manager with Dudley Moore. And one of the, and I was getting people lunch and stuff. I was a production assistant. And one of the actresses got me into Lee Strasberg's, he's close to the end of his life, into his class. How old were you? I was 18. So it was like after high school, you're not going to and, college. And it was a little intimidating because I also went to high school with Matthew, the other person I went to high school with, with Kenny and Matthew Broderick. And Matthew hit it immediately yeah. out of high school. Like yeah. it just exploded. You know what I mean? And, yeah. and so, I was there, I remember. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and so you're going like, you know, this is pre-Ferris Bueller. You're sort of going like, Jesus, is that, that success? Man, I better hurry up, you know? So, um, uh, but, you know, and then I did a acting school and then 
I moved on my birthday to meet a manager in LA at 21 and I never left. You know, I, I mean, I hang on. so wait, you're in, when were you in boarding school? Like when I was 12 and 13. Okay. And then you came back to this high to the school city and went to this upper West side. Yeah. And lived this kind of like, I, you know, I have this line about New York in 1979. In 1979, there were no parents in New York City. You know, I mean, they, didn't, they didn't exist. Yeah. They had no, I mean, there was no such thing. No one, they didn't, they didn't, no one asked you anything. You know yeah. what I mean? No one, they didn't know what was going on with you. It was madness. It was a have, wild place and a different place. And a, we just ran wild, you know I mean? It, it's hard for people today who go to New York to remember sort of pre-Giuliani yes. New York. Like that when you, like Hell's Kitchen, I walked into a bar there one time in the eighties and like, there's one light over this pool table. Like yeah. it was like, my uncle was in a bike club and it was a bunch of bikers. And I thought, oh yeah, this is the shit I've been hearing about. Yeah. Like this, like this feels oh. right. And I've interviewed people from New York from that time who were like, yeah, I saw stuff at 12 that I shouldn't have seen. But like right. nobody was telling me not to see it. Right, exactly. <laughs> yeah. And 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 I think I think the '60s had like worn everybody out. You know what I mean? Like like the left, it was like, oh, we we're supposed to let them do whatever they want, and not realizing like that that wouldn't work either. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, as unfettered access to everything may not right. be the safest environment for a child to grow up right. in. <laughs> yeah. So you so you go to this high school that's like that has these. I'm assuming it's a good high school since there are weird. Just, like, it was just sort of the end. You know, my, um, it was the end of it was a famous progressive left wing Upper West Side High School where the guy who got killed in Mississippi burning went. Andy Goodman. Oh, Andy Goodman. Oh, he now, was part of the the was the two guys who got killed. Schwerner and, and yeah, Schwerner, yeah, Schwerner, 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 and Cheney, the three yeah, yeah, of them. Yeah, the three. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 And it was just sort of the Reagan was coming in and it was sort of the death of the 60s. So we were sort of the last of these kids who's, who there was still trying to be some sort of progressive education idealism. Yeah. And it's sort of the hold, you know, the hold, the, the end yeah. of that. But it was, a, it was a, again, it, you know, I grew up in, a, it was just a bunch of people where, you know, it was funky. It was what it was not fancy and not everyone was incredibly rich. There were shrinks kids, but you got the feeling like no one ever would tell you, you couldn't do whatever the hell you want. You know, everybody's famous artists, kids and actors, kids. And it was just like, Oh, you want to do that? Of course. I mean, we all felt like we could just do whatever the hell we wanted. Like it was our right. You know, that was the, I don't know if you call that elitism, but it was just a kind of creative carte blanche to invent or be how good or anything you could you know yeah. and there was no discouragement for that that was completely legitimate to say yeah. i want to be an actor where it i'm was, sure there are families and places in this country where that's not you know 100 were you doing any of that in school or were you just being at the yeah i was in i was in a couple of plays at the end you know what yeah. i mean and but i was always writing i've always i was always writing poetry and I'll, i've always been writing so we're going to take a break real quick and then we're going to come back and then we're going to get into that like post eight like post high school, like where it all goes. Right. Okay. As a podcast network, our first priority has always been audio and the stories we're able to share with you. But we also sell merch and organizing that was made both possible and easy with Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell and grow at every stage of your business, from the launch your online shop stage all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. They have an all-in-one e-commerce platform and in-person POS system, so wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. With the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. Shopify has allowed us to share something tangible with the podcast community we've built here, selling our beanies, sweatshirts, and mugs to fans of our shows without taking up too much time from all the other work we do to bring you even more great content. And it's not just us. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Shopify is also the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. 
Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash realm, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash R-E-A-L-M now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash realm. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it. Or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz and how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. All right, so we left and you were you were getting ready to finish uh finish up a school college isn't on the books you got right. so i just and then i just came out here and i became i mean it all leads to kind of the book you know what i mean yeah. that's straight dope because i came out here and you were 21 so you worked for a couple of years in new york and i worked at like zay bars and I, and i went no i went and i went to this two-year acting program like the neighborhood playoffs oh, was this the lee strasberg no day? i did that one year and then i and then i went and did this two-year acting program came out here woman wanted to represent me as a manager. I got an agent and I started to act, you know what I mean? And um, how did you get an agent? Like right when you moved out there? Was it just- a, well, I it, had connection. I mean, I knew people and I was, you know, I was, again, you know, it was like, I just came from not privilege, but like a kid I went to high schools with older brother ended up being my agent, you know, I yeah. just- I, you know, I was just around the right Jews. I would use that way to say it. <laughs> you were in the milieu. Like if you surround, I mean, if you live a creative life, you're going to be around people who's yeah, like. And I was, you know, I was good enough. You know, I was, and I had, I was young and I had a lot of vibrancy. And, and, and I mean, I was, I was worth taking a shot on. So, and I started to work, you know what I mean? But what happened was, interestingly, I got cast in lead movies that kept getting, like the money would fall through, they get canceled last minute, and I would have to audition against like Downey, you know, Robert, and beat him in like eight auditions, and beat out Tim Robbins, and beat out like you know all these people. Now we all have been watching for forty years, you know what I mean? And um, and then the movie would fall through, and then I got another one, but I kept working. I did this Vietnam movie called Hamburger Hill. Yeah, yeah. I was one of the stars in with you know Cheadle and Stephen Weber yeah. and Dylan McDermott and all these people. And then on Hamburger Hill, something interesting happened, which was. I started to write a book during it on the on the long drives back longhand, which for me is difficult. And I wrote a novel in this kind of 0600 hours, like a journal of the shoot. And I didn't, I typed it up, but I didn't see it through for whatever reason. And then I, and then I got, I was sort of married for the first time for a brief period of time to an actress. And then I got, and then I met this, my, my second wife. And then we started to, and then drugs, just took my life over. I just started, like all my friends in New York City, I grew up with a lot of kids who'd all become heroin acts and either died or gotten clean or there was yeah. trouble with it. And I got strung out and I didn't, and acting, I was starting to sour on acting. You know, it's, it's a, the interesting thing about acting is how intensely identified you have to be with your face in a certain way. And I just was more interested. I always ended up writing my own dialogue when I got parts a lot too. I just was realized, I just writing was always more more interesting to me, but but you, know, you had like four or five years where like I mean outside of the movies that fell through 83, like, 80, 83, 84, 85, 86, 87, 88. I was a child's play in eighty eight. You know yeah. that classic horror movie. I'm one of the cops. So yeah, five years of really doing. And Hamburger that. Hill was a big like. I literally just watched that the other day. Uh, yeah. Like it's yeah. people. I mean for. It was, yeah, it was one of those three Vietnam movies of the yeah. three Vietnam movies. And that one was the one that was for me anyway, like that one, you know, um, that to me was the most brutal of them. Like the end of that movie is like, just, it's just unrelenting. It's an unrelenting movie. 
And the guy who, the director is interested, you know, had an identification, but the guy who shot it was this guy who ended up directing, I think, the Rambo movies. Oh, really? Peter McDonald. And they just really shot the shit out of that. And, and we were in the Philippines, like, and they were burning like 800 tires a day to get that smoke, doing things you could do nowhere else in the world. Well, I'm dude. sure. I'm sure. And, and, um, well, for that last up the hill, like going up yeah, the hill. Yeah, yeah, intense. yeah. It was intense yeah. to do, even to act it. Oh, I'm sure. So, right. So, so, and then I started writing poetry. And then there were a couple of years in LA where they had this poetry reading with stars started to do. And I got kind of, really like I was sort of like finish that I would end that reading and I kind of kind of got a poetry not really a following but I had the in and I got tight with I was this woman Wanda Coleman who's a big poet was on Black Sparrow tried to get me a book and I couldn't really see it through I was living in this weekly room and I was kind of I'd stopped acting kind of I was strung out writing poetry you know I always say I gave up acting to become a junkie poet because there's so much money in it and um (laughs) Jim King didn't you follow the Jim <laughs> Carroll role of yeah. <laughs> and then I wrote a play. I wrote a play with a kid I had been in a theater company with, and I wrote a play, and he we were gonna do it. And he wanted a, a friend of his to direct it. And he got this kid, Michael Goldberg, who he'd gone to graduate school in Michigan with to direct it. And he read the play and said, This is a good play. Well, he said, This is good. Why don't you make it a real play? And I said, What do you mean by that, man? and he showed me he said well you got this and this and this should happen and you need this conflict and it should be about this and we became writing partners and i never wrote anything again without him until he died you know he got wow. brain cancer um you know whatever 10 years later maybe 11 and and then i was living in this weekly room writing poetry strung out i wrote this screenplay about my family that got us an agent and then we got we we got at Cool Runnings and we wrote Cool Runnings, you know this this Jamaican bobsled movie, and it became a hit, you know. Yeah, you. Loved it. yeah. So and and to this day, I mean, it's insane the love that that movie. I mean, I can do anything. I will have to do something really radical to not have people go. I don't care about anything else. I care about Cool Runnings. Man. Yeah. I mean, and it was the first thing we didn't even like it. We were like, what is this dumb shit? You know, we didn't even yeah. saw the movie. We were like, this is ridiculous. So, um, but people, then, I mean, it's a feel good movie. It is, it is, it totally is. And, I, and I like everybody it. watched that. I mean, that was back when everybody watched the Olympics. So you also remember seeing the actual thing right. and like worried that all those guys were dead. Right. Like when it flipped over, like, holy shit, this is, what are oh. they doing? Like, this is oh. crazy. Um, so, but so, so there was really, so when you stop acting in like 88, 87, 88, somewhere around there, you don't decide to stop acting you just kind of stop acting you know in retrospect i it was an absurd it was all about being being high on it, it, heroin just took over my life i yeah. mean it, it, it's just it's just not i wasn't able to keep it at bay and i was i was mixed about acting and i had had these kind of near I was also ridiculously impatient. I didn't understand life. I'm 26 years old. Yeah. And I'm like, why aren't I a star yet? I mean, it's absurd. You know what I mean? I mean, when I think about it now, I just think you, are you crazy? Like, what were you thinking? You were never stopped working. You never had to have another job. You were really, you know, and people don't get good at it till their thirties. Anyway. I mean, it was just dumb. I was yeah. just, and I had no one to sort of tell me, but really, maybe I'm a writer, but more than anything, I was just strung out, you know? Yeah. And so I didn't want to go to auditions. I didn't want to, I couldn't really function in, in that way. So I just let it go. And then once the screenwriting started, I had Michael to sort of be the face of it a little bit. I mean, we'd go together, but all I had to do was show up for a few hours a day. Yeah. Do this thing I could do. He didn't even know how to write. He didn't even know how to type. Yeah. And I would give him the pages and he would take them home or do them there, read them, come with the notes. I mean, we were a great yeah, because we really did different things. Yeah, I learned eventually what he like over time. I could sort of learn what he did because it's a way of thinking about things. But yeah, I have a writing but, partner. I'm the same. Like I always tell people, he's a he's a writer and I'm a storyteller. Like he's really like I grew up in an oral culture. Like I can sit down and tell you a story and and you'll be riveted. And if I sit down and write it, he'll write it better. 
and yeah. like and, and they're like we just have this thing that like we we're able to work together and those like I so I get it like yeah. but I also like the reason I asked about the acting um you know because there is this I think if you're not prepared for that kind of success and I had it on a very small scale I was at Wired during the boom so I was writing for millions of people I come from this small town like I didn't really know people who were successful and right. I fucking melted down. I mean, I ran as far away from that as I could after a few years because I was going to drink myself to death. The right. The idea of that many eyes and that much everything coming at you. Like, so I didn't know. I was like, was that a thing that you think you consciously experienced or was it like just something else? Like, was it just the lifestyle and being young? No, it was. I know what you're talking about. I can yeah. relate to it. I mean, I mean, it's funny. I was, you know, the per I was just talking to them my friend who I'm here with, and, and they were telling me about, you know, this, this, this shrink that they're a therapist. And there's the shrink Winnicott who says, you know, the artist's thing is to this intense sort of conflict between exposing yourself and, and wanting to hide. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. And, 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 yes. and which part, which part gets the upper hand, you know, so I, I can relate to what you're talking about. Um, I have a conflicted, relationship to to ambition and stuff you know and I always you know when my success which was hard for me to relate to when you've been an actor screenwriting success is is great and it's fulfilling but it's so not yeah about people recognizing you. yes so it's a different thing even directing you know I mean it, your place in the industry is all juicy. There's a lot of juice coming at you there, but it's not like you're talking about where people are reading you, where you've got a relationship to the public. Yeah. What you've done is you've infiltrated, or as our agent once said to me, he said, show business is a big joke. Now you're in on it. You know yeah. what I mean? <laughs> yeah. and, so, and so we were in on the showbiz joke, but it was not being a star or having the public have any relationship to you. So that wasn't hard. Yeah. But it's all it is it is weird and 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 it's you know when you're hurting when you're when you're living a kind of secret crazy self-destructive life at that same time you know that juxtaposition that crazy duality between sort of like being in an office in dreamworks and meeting with spielberg and jeffrey katzenberg and then driving down to the pep boys yeah. corner to cop yeah well i i knew it was interesting that's how i knew the book eventually i'd get to stuff like that and combine those worlds in the book, even though it took yeah. me a long time, because I knew there was something there. I mean, the most famous person to do it is Jerry Stahl with his memoir. Permanent oh, yeah. Midnight, you know? Permanent Midnight. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's the only movie I've ever walked out of. It was not a good movie. Jerry was not happy with it either. He's in the movie I made, the, that movie. I made that movie, A Thousand Junkies. Oh, really? He has a cameo, yeah. I didn't walk out because it was bad. I walked out. I mean, it was not a great movie. Right. It's like, how do you make that a great movie? Like, it's right. hard. But it was it was so hard, like it like it was like you're just watching this destruction of this person. <laughs> someone who's a writer, I'm like, I can't fucking sit through. Well, well, well <laughs> leaving Las Vegas was even. Oh yeah, that's the other one. Yeah, yeah. that's the. But I knew that especially if you drink, <laughs> especially if you drink. Yeah, but I knew Permanent Midnight was real. Like leaving Las Vegas is right. not. Like it was not a biography of somebody. Or, no, you know, Permanent Midnight is real. Yeah. Yeah, and so I was watching that. And was like, nope, nope, nope. Big, big no on this. <laughs> well, if there are any big Jerry Stahl fans in your audience, he wrote me an email going, "I picked up your book. First paragraph's great. Nathaniel West would be proud of you." So I got to <laughs> at least have the first paragraph. <laughs> so now, how did you meet? Like, how did you meet uh, your writing partner? How did you meet Michael? I told you I wrote a play and my and my and my and my and my partner simply had him direct was going to direct it and then he said more than direct it I'm going to dramaturge it you know and let's and then we just realized we had a relationship as writers and we and I wrote a screen we wrote a screenplay together and then we just wrote for ten years together you know we so just, he was sort of he was somebody in the sphere that you were in that somebody was like oh hey I've chosen he was, my he was wanting to direct a two man play I wrote the first wow. thing I ever wrote right yeah that's crazy and so. What was the writing partnership? I'm always fascinated by like what, like what, because it went on for what? You said a decade. Like it would have went on, yeah. It was I was a generator of material, and he, I was a, I, I mined ore, and he cut jewels. You know what I mean? I do. Yeah. And so, and he had a feeling for story 
where he understood theater and story and he understood the movement of story, which I understand now and I think of intensely, but back then I'd be like, Michael, stop. I just want this guy to say this. This is fun. Like, uh, listen, listen to this great line or what this guy says, you know? Although I had it too a little bit naturally, but he really had it in terms of a perspective yeah. of a arc of it. He had the structure. He knew like, oh, this is supposed he to happen He had a natural, yeah. as I said, it is you as a memorial. He was a natural watch fixer and it could be a Timex or a Rolex. Yeah. He could fix a watch, man. Yeah, that was my writing partners the same way. Cause I do the same thing. I'll be like, oh, this part's like I wrote when we when we when the book came out, when our first book came out a long time ago, we were doing an interview. Somebody asked what the best part of the book was. I'm like, you're not gonna see it because John would John cut it out of the book. Like it didn't really fit. Like he, I was like, we can shoehorn this in. He's like, that's not how any of this works. <laughs> so the best chapter of the book is fucking sitting on my computer that nobody will ever see. Yeah. Um, and it's important to have that. So what was the transition like? Like you're you're doing this writing and you're right like the things you are writing are the antithesis of being a hooked on heroin right right so like like how does that arc go as you're working on those things like it doesn't it doesn't really it doesn't really matter you know i mean first of all you're not it's it's not like when you do it, like when you're strung out long enough, you're basically buying oxygen or water. You know what I mean? You're not, yeah. and, and you're either being, you're getting, and, and the real joy of it, like I was, I've said this before, I think I did some interview with wh whatever that other one's called, not Wired, but that uh, that crazy site that, you know, that, that uh, anyway, I, uh, it's what heroin's amazing about heroin is it provides an amazing structure for your life. Yeah. It tells you what to, it, it, you think of it as being chaotic. It's not, it's yeah. the opposite. It's incredibly structuring. You have to have it. You have to get money to get it. It tells you what to do. It tells you, it gives you a raison d'etre of the highest order. It's just a dark one yeah. and to your own demise, but it is a purpose. And, and, and the movie I made, you know, that was all, it's all about a work day. I mean, the goal of scoring and the goal of it. So it did that. That, that was a thing. So, you know, and that's its own thing. You know, in terms of sort of like it infiltrating the darkness of my soul that like, how do you write little giants and shoot heroin? They don't have, they're not mutually exclusive because yeah. one is you're, you're simply learning, getting yourself functional. And I grew up on, you know, sitcom TV. I grew up on 60s and 70s TV. I have my own sort of simplicity and dyslexic problems with, fancy language you know i'm not i'm not I, I i come from a lot of intellectuals but i'm not a fancy person and I, I just had a feeling for being able to write sort of authentic accessible dialogue you know i could yeah. i could handle that stuff i got yeah. it you know and i didn't think of it as cheesy i just thought of it as you know it wasn't dark you couldn't do everything but the feelings were authentic yeah. and there's a skill to doing that stuff well, you know what I mean? hundred like, percent there is. Yeah, yeah. I, I always like, anytime I talk to writers, like I always tell folks like every, every professional writer has a skill. Like I don't, I'm not one of those people that privilege this over that. I'm like, writing's right. hard and whatever you're doing is a skill and a craft. I only asked, my uncle was a, a heroin addict and he started a bike club. And so I, I sort of, I watched his life and, and, and some of the, uh, and I wrote about him and I, I've done a bunch of stuff and what you say, like that is maybe one of the most interesting descriptions of it because he had a very regimented life, yeah. even though, you know, he was a, he was a veteran and, and, and was right. in a fight right. club and, but they, but they also raised money for like children's um, hospitals. Like there's a hospital wing named after them. And like, but that money came from places that people just didn't ask about, right? And like when it when it went when it all fell apart, and my and my partner got sick and couldn't work anymore, got a brain tumor, got brain cancer. Um, it was it was tough, man. And then and then it all kind of you know became like a little like a a, a success, and a lot of people depending on you can keep you floating but when you're then sort of when that goes and you're left to your own devices yeah 
it goes down. Man. Well, I mean, you have a choice, right? Like that's when you re you reach the pit, you reach the fork in the road, and there's one or two ways you're gonna go. I couldn't, I couldn't do any. The, the fork was reached for me. You know, I got really sick in 2007, and had to have open heart surgery. I got this thing called endocarditis. You know, yeah. and um, I and then I had a bleeding ulcer that they perforated trying to stop, and I was in the hospital 66 days, and I almost died. And, that's what it took. Like I went to rehab after rehab. I went to meet, no, 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 it made no impact on me. Yeah. I was just unwilling to suffer and unwilling to stop until God was just like, you're off, you're out, forget it. You're off the table, you're out of the game. Like yeah. I'm yanking you off the board, you're off the field. <laughs> it, you know, it's, it. Uh, I laugh, you know, I was in and out of rehab and, and things most of my life and, uh, it wasn't until I went, I found a good cognitive behavioral therapist and she was like, yeah, rehab will help you quit, but there's underlying shit that you got to deal with. And until you do that, you're going to be hanging on white knuckling. You know, I've been 10 years sober and she was like, how do you feel? I'm like, I still feel like I'm hanging on the side of the cliff. She's right. like, yeah, you haven't fixed anything. Right. Right. And like, that is so like, it is. Absolutely. You know, it's, it's just an interesting phenomenon. It's like, again, like I went through it about 14 levels below you in terms of like our careers and stuff, but I'm like, oh yeah, like there is just this thing. That but it's the same exact thing. Yeah. Right? There's no difference yeah. between the substance or the success. And yeah. you're doing another creative thing that's sort of is structured, but isn't, it's, yeah. it's difficult terrain. Yeah. It, it, and so I just, so, so after um, so you, you have the partner. So is a thousand junkies, the first thing that you write by your, the first, no, the, I got a bunch of stuff, but what happened was this, you know, I, I mean, is know, that the first one you wrote by yourself? Is that the first, the one first you, it was, no, it was the first, I wrote a lot of stuff by myself after Michael and, 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 and none of it got made, but I got a bunch of jobs and, and yeah. I, I was able to do it. And I was writing short stories and stuff. A thousand junkies was a big deal. Because I, you know, I, I, in 2007, I'd gotten sick. Then I was on methadone for four years. And I got off the methadone and it was difficult. And I was really clean, clean. And I was getting occasional jobs and stuff. But that was when I said, oh, I'm going to direct this movie. And, and I raised the money and I kind of manifested, like I became the adult. Like there's something about screen, like where people, when you, the studio is the parent and you're the creative bratty child as the screenwriter. Right. And they're trying to get you to behave and do the right thing. And you're trying to be the creative child for them. But they're the parent. And, and, and on Thousand Junkies, I was the director. I was the producer with some other guys. I was raising the money. I was the parent. There, were, there was no one above me. There was no one making sure this was going to happen. I was answering to nobody. And that changed my life. Like to actually become an adult in, on the adult side of that and see that through. And it took years and raising the money, but that changed my life because it, it forced me, it, it just, and also I was able to take me and my friend TJ, who I wrote it with, who's in it, who's amazing. And this other kid, Blake, who, who one of the kids OD'd after the movie and oh, died, geez. one of the three actors, who was a child star was in a movie called Shiloh that a lot of people know, a Disney movie. But it changed everything because first of all, I was able to take this, it was like, you know, it was like a hero's journey to the dark, you know, I, alchemy. I took this lead and made it into gold, this terrible thing that had fucked our lives up and we made something positive yeah. out of it. And then we just did it. Like I, I got this movie done and went to Tribeca. It's on Amazon. Like yeah. I, you know, cause it, it really is like being hired to write is hard and you gotta be good at it, but you, you, they're, you know, they're paying you, they're writing you checks. This other thing was psychically exhausting. So I did that, and that, that, that can I ask? Was that the first time that you felt like? Because you had talked about it like earlier in the interview when you were like, "Well, if I'd have written all this stuff down, this would have been an amazing right. the stuff that I was right, doing." Right. Was this the time that you were like that? It's everything—the acting, the writing, the all of it—sort of came together, and you're like, "This is the story." Like this yes. is this we and, and my friend TJ and I and we and we and we knew we said these drug movies. You know, they're these hip, slick, and cool. Let's make a movie about with no drugs in it, about getting how desperate it is to try to get them and just be as pathetic as we really are and be the least cool people yeah. ever. Yeah. Because and and just drive around like waiting for Godot, but we go look for Godot. You know what I mean? And it's a work day, it's a movie. Yeah. So, you know, it was just 
it just changed everything because you know and i was directing i mean it was just it was the ownership thing it yeah. was just simply and and not taking no for an answer and 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 getting an editor and sitting in the editing room and just seeing it through you know and yeah. the novel was the same way you know my friend i have a friend david ritz he interviewed me for this reading the other day who's the sort of the great um I don't know what you call it, ghostwriter or co-writer of black music autobiographies. He wrote Ray Charles' book. He wrote Marvin Gaye's book, Aretha's wow. book, Smokey's book. I mean, he's the biggest. He's done 50 he, books. He's, you know, he he co-wrote Sexual Healing. He was real tight with Marvin. He's done Rickles. He's done Dice Clay. That's every, he's just, this. He's, he's about to do Stallone. He did Val Kilmer's book and, Len, and Lenny Kravitz's book. He never stops. He's a wow. madman. That's a good gig if you can get it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> And, and he said to me, you know, and he's family with me, his, in a weird way, his, his, his nephew, his, his son-in-law is, is my sister's nephew, which is a weird thing, but whatever. He knew he had met my mother, gone to Thanksgiving. We got hooked up out here. We'd never met. I'd lived here forever. He lives here. And then one day he said to me, you need to write a book. You know, you should just put everything in it. You know what I mean? And I got the idea. And then, you know, my, my son had to read The Big Sleep and he couldn't read it. And then he gave it to this woman who was living with my, who's my wife's music partner, who was living at the house for a while. And she read it and said to me, I read it, man. It's, I hate it. What is this crap? And I said, what? I said, I hear Raymond Chandler's amazing. Like, let me read this thing. Let me see. I read a page, two pages. And I go, I can do it. I can do it. I can do it. I know I can do it. Like, not only do I get it, but like, I get how it's done, like I, the rhythm, I get it. You know yeah. what I mean? And I didn't think I could write a book. I'd written, I'd written a few short stories. I'd written some longer prose pieces, maybe 12,000 words, 14. And I just leaned on that. My thing was this, like for writing, this is my thing. I can sit down right now after we finish and go, here's what I'm feeling. Here's what just happened between me and you. I've got this energy. It's alive in me now. I can capture it. I, yep. can, I can get it out of me. To return every day to a thing that has to hold the same mood and continue with a mood is a little more challenging. Really you know hard. I mean? Yeah. Really hard. Yeah. And it's not screenwriting. So it's, and you know, it's, it's prose writing. So I said, let me lean on this guy. Let me lean on this sort of noir detective shorthand as a way to be able to at least do the same thing every day yeah. without all of a sudden having 18 different books. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so it got me through. And I said, and I'm not going to write about, I don't know anything about this. I'm going to write about all the things I know about yeah. heroin addiction, recovery, and screenwriting. I'm not going to yeah, yeah. make shit up because I, I don't make shit up, you know, because yeah. that's not my way. But I'll, I'll, I'll weaponize it with this Chandler noir 40s kind of LA shorthand. I know LA. I'll make LA the star with everything else. And it took me, it took me a long ass time. It took me a couple of years and, you know, it, it, I was pretty slow, but I was able to do it. You know, I was yeah. able to get to the end. Well, and so the book is straight dope, right? And that is yeah. out. And, and, but so as I was, as I look at like the, the film and the book, again, They're companion pieces. What's that? The yeah. Kind of companion pieces. Yeah. Well, they're in the world, right? Like at the end of the day, I think writers, at least, you know, I only know, uh, people that write books. I mean, I have friends that do all stuff, but most of the people I, I know are book or magazine folk. You get in that world and as soon as you know when you're in the place you should be writing because the stories are there. Like you sort of understand right. this place that is only in your head, yeah. right? Is that sort of how you felt as you were doing that? Like, oh yeah, here's, this is me. This is the voice. This is the stories. These are the things. Yeah, that's, that's basically right. You know what I mean? I was just sort of like, as you said about, I was, as you said about storytelling, you know, I was on the porch in my head telling yeah. myself the story, you know? Yeah. And it's, it's such a powerful place. And like, not every writer, get, like you can tell as a writer when somebody's not writing from their porch, right? Like right. as a professional writer, you read it and you're like, that was a job. 
Right. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. um, I interviewed a guy named Michael Elias. I don't know if you know Michael. I know that name. Um, he was the guy who wrote the jerk. He was a big, he wrote, he did stuff yes. with Steve Martin. And, right. and he, you know, after all, he'd been a comedy guy. And then he wrote this book called You Can Go Home Now, which is set in LA and it's a detective. And I sent him a note after. I'm like, oh my God, I fucking hate you. Like it, the comedy he wrote was great. The movie shit that he wrote was great. And then he was, just, but it was, it is like what you just said. Like he knew structure, but also LA was his thing. And he had the question that was, or the thing he wanted to explore. And it just exploded off the page. And like, it was so amazing to me. Um, and I'm super excited to pick up your book because one, this sounds like, I'm gonna understand it, but two, I love, um, I love that kind of noir LA stuff. Like that just sort of speaks to me, even though I hate LA and I'm more of a New York guy. Yeah. <laughs> so, is the plan then to keep doing novels? Is that like, have you? Well, you know, I have this kind of crazy screenwriting gig that's like a lot of my friends say we have the best gig in in the writing gig of all time, uh, which was not the case. I was in bad shape a few years ago, but I have a friend who I did cool runnings with, who was the executive producer and worked for this woman, Dawn Steele at that point. And he has become sort of the um, animation king of now that now that the guy from Pixar is gone, he does these, he, these uh, he's got a company called Illumination that does the minions. Mm -hmm. Oh, <laughs> so he started those and I and, and and we tried to do a couple of things We're close friends always have been, but he ran into trouble on the Grinch that came out a couple of years ago. And, and I kind of, you know, came in, they had 20 writers and I know how to do Dr. Seuss. I can just write him. I understand them. I can write those rhyming couplets forever. <laughs> and um, I was able to be very helpful. You know what I mean? And kind of yeah. save the, the, on that particular one. And I had just come off the, the junkie movie and I'd been in the editing room and I was just, I was just able to help this movie. And between me and him and, and a woman named, Latifa and the director, um, Scott Moser, we were able to get the thing to function and they were in trouble. And um, and then I, and so I kind of work for Chris now. I just worked on Puss in Boots 2. It doesn't have a lot of my stuff in it because another director took over. I'm going to write the, you know, I'm doing a, a one live action thing, but I'm going to try to write the donkey. A big part of Straight Dope is my relationship to Jeffrey Katzenberg in the book because I'm going to have to go pitch for him. And I was the first writer on Shrek, me and Michael were. And we didn't do anything. We didn't write any dialogue. There's nothing in that movie we wrote, but it was a, a book about a little ogre, the ogre. It's a six page book and there's a donkey on one page. And I said, this should be a buddy movie between this donkey and, and, and I said, Midnight Cowboy is the movie I want to base it on. <laughs> and that's stuck. So, so that's my, that was the great contribution. And that's a big plot point. Big I one. Mean, yeah, yeah, big one. Very, yeah. I think I'm like, and, and it doesn't work anyway. So I, I'm going to get a chance to write the, the donkey origin story now. So I work for this. I work for Chris as a full-time employee. And I'm able to, if I get my work done, write prose on the side a little bit. You know what I mean? So I just finished my second book, which is very different than this book. It's a unidealized, very kinky, dirty romance where I'm having this kind of crazy, kinky texting with this girl. And I have a toothache and I accidentally send this insane ranting dommed out text to my dentist who's an armenian woman and a trump supporter <laughs> and hilarity and turns, ensues <laughs> and it turns into a romance between me and her because she turns out to be not who i thought she was <laughs> so, so and that's a whole other style and uh yeah that's a very different thing than the world you were in but um but so i'm yes i i like I like the pro I like the novel form. I like the long form. And um, you know, I do it a certain way. I, it's poetic. I have my style with it, kind of a, you know, like where about the screenwriting and the poetry sort of intersect. Yeah. And um, I like it. I, I enjoy it. And and most of all, I want to make another movie. But to go out, you know, making a movie is like, you know, like herding cats, as they say, or whatever that expression is, yeah. sitting in a room by yourself. With a computer is a lot easier. Man. A lot easier. It yeah. is. Unfortunately, it's getting people to read a book and getting people to watch a movie are also very different. You know, eat, you know what I mean? Watching movies is easier, even accidentally, without us doing great promotion on our movie, people end up seeing it on, right. on Amazon and 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 you know, it'll be a hell of a thing to get a bunch of people to read this book, you know, just yeah. because of the subject matter and stuff. So they're all challenging. Man. 
Well, listen, this has been, well, I've been looking forward to this interview since we set this up because one, there is a kindred to just the life story <laughs> that we have, but two, um, you're just, it's fascinating. Your life is fascinating in what you've done. And I love writers that write in lots of different genres and lots of different places. Like that to me is like the ultimate, I can do one thing. I can write nonfiction. So when I talk to people who are doing lots of different stuff, like, I don't know if lay people know, but like, that's a fucking real skill that takes a lot of time and craft and talent to do. So I also was just really interested to hear your Thanks. story. Yeah. Uh, Straight Dope out now. You can get it anywhere, right? Yeah, on Amazon, yeah. And uh, Stark House Press. Yeah, Stark House Press. I'm going to go get it now. I can already tell. This, I'm going to devour this thing in about... Uh, it's, 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 it's for, it's for, it's for um, challenged people. <laughs> if, you're, if, you're, if, you, if Faulkner... If you do a page every three hours of Faulkner, you'll love this book. It's going to be great then. It's going to be great. Well, you have a good time down there, and uh, I hope we can talk again soon. Okay. Thanks, man. Well, there you have it. That was Tommy Swerdlow. His book, Straight Dope, is out right now. He was fabulous. I really hope you enjoyed that because it was just a ball to do. Uh, and I truly hope that we stay in touch. And uh, his book is sitting by my nightstand. I ordered it immediately. Um, and it is next in the queue. It jumped a few spots because I'm very excited to read it. Before we get out of here, just a couple reminders. If you like what you heard today, do us those two favors. Tell your friends about us and leave us a review either on Apple Podcasts, Facebook, or through the website. While you're at it, don't forget to check out the other programs on the Solid Listen Podcast Network, including the flagship Mother Mass Sleep With Podcast with host and our Solid Listen Podcast queen, Molly MacLear. Don't forget those video podcasts coming out every Monday and Friday on the Solid Listen Network YouTube channel. You can also catch them on our website, theridersjam.com, and the audio version right here on this channel wherever you're listening to podcasts now. And the jam is out every Wednesday, so make sure you get subscribed. Get yourself subscribed wherever you listen to podcasts so that you don't miss an episode. I don't know why that became very difficult to say. And remember, you can always catch us on Twitter and Instagram at The Writer's Jam. Until the next time, I will see you around the internet. Hey there, it's Rachel Ballinger, and I am extremely excited to invite you to Rachel Uncensored. It's my podcast where I sit down and get real with my friends and celebrity guests where we talk about all sorts of topics, and sometimes we might be under the influence when we do so. We cover things from personal stories to hot-button issues, and it's the only place on the internet you can find an uncensored version of me. It's a side of me that you might not have seen before because it's not the most family or brand friendly. But don't worry, I'm still sort of slightly a decent human being. If you're intrigued, then make sure you check it out. New episodes drop every Wednesday. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Trust me, you won't want to miss out on the fun and candid conversations we have here on Rachel Uncensored.